0: Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake." The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to walk by faith and not by sight. Work in our heart the kind of godliness which is profitable for all things you've called us to. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Mark chapter 13 is Jesus' discourse about a diminished city. At the beginning of Mark 13, the disciples ask Jesus, when will the temple be destroyed, and what will be the sign that helps us be prepared for it? And Jesus answers that question in verses 5 through 31. Then beginning in verse 32, Jesus describes a different event, an event for which there is not a sign, what Christians call the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so verses 5 through 31 describe a known time, as verse 29 says, and verses 32 through 37 describe a not known time, as verse 32 calls it. And so we need to look at these particular verses beginning in verses 24 through 31, the event for which there is a sign, the known time. As we saw a couple of weeks ago, this is the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. And the reason evangelicals are filled with the mistaken notion that verses 24 through 27 are talking about the second coming is because they don't realize that Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus is quoting four Old Testament passages. The first is Isaiah chapter 13 verse 10, which talks about how the stars, sun, and moon won't give light. And you see that language reflected in Mark 13 verses 24 through 25. So what is Isaiah talking about when he talks about how the sun, stars, and moon won't give light? Well, if you look at Isaiah chapter 13, verse 1, you see that Isaiah is talking about the fall of a great empire, Babylon. The second Old Testament quote from Jesus here is Amos chapter 8, verses 2 and 9, which also talks about how the sun will go down at noon and darkness will fill the earth. And you see that reflected in Mark 13, verse 24. So what is Amos talking about when he talks about how the star, sun, and moon won't give light? Well, Amos is talking about the fall of Israel in the 700 B.C.s. He's talking about the fall of an empire, the fall of a city. So Jesus now has quoted from two Old Testament passages. The first is about the fall of a great city. The second is about the fall of a great city. I wonder what Jesus might be talking about. Could he be talking about the fall of a great city. The third Old Testament passage Jesus quotes from is Haggai chapter two, verses six and seven, which talks about how God will shake all the nations. Of course, you see that language there in Mark 13, verse 25. So what is Haggai talking about? Well, Haggai's talking about how God is going to shake the heavens and the earth and all the nations. And the result of this shaking is as Haggai 2 7 says the treasures of all nations shall come in now what does that mean well just think great commission just think fulfillment of the abrahamic covenant and you actually see this also reflected in Mark 13, verse 27. If you look there, you see that Jesus refers to the four winds, which is referring to the earth, all the earth. And it talks about how the messengers of God are going to call God's people, call the elect to the kingdom. And the word messengers there, it's the Greek word angelos. And of course, we see that usually translated as the word angel, you know, that, that heavenly being. But actually the word just means messenger, and you see it referring to people several times throughout the Bible. And so the messengers of God, the people of God, the apostles in the early church are going to take the gospel to the earth. And the fourth Old Testament passage Jesus quotes from is Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And admittedly, this passage is quite a bit more complicated than the other three passages. But this is talking about how the Son of Man, which as we see when you read throughout Daniel is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Son of Man will come with the clouds of heaven and have everlasting dominion on all the earth, a kingdom that won't be destroyed. Of course, you see that language there in Mark chapter 13, verse 26. So what is Daniel talking about with the, with the Son of Man, with the, with the Son of God coming on the clouds of heaven? Well, God is going to send the Son of God to judge the temple and end the old order of the temple system and establish a new order, the new kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so what you see in this passage is Jesus is referring to four different Old Testament passages. And it's easy to get lost when you start doing this. You're connecting the Old Testament to the New Testament. You're trying to connect the dots. It's easy to get lost. And so let's make it really simple. Jesus quotes four Old Testament passages. One is about the fall of a great empire, Babylon. One is about the fall of a great empire, Israel. One is about the shaking up of the nations. And one is about the coming of Christ's kingdom. And remember also in Mark chapter 13, verse 30, Jesus tells us that all of this, whatever this is, whatever this is talking about, all of this will be fulfilled in this generation. And in the Gospels, this generation is a phrase that always refers to the evil and adulterous generation in which Jesus lived. So when you bring all of that together then, What is Mark 13, verses 24 through 27 talking about? Well, Jesus is using the Old Testament and applying it to the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. And so once you see those, those things exegetically, then you have to say, okay, well, then does that match historically what was happening? So historically, what was happening? in the lifetime of Jesus' generation. Well, as we saw two weeks ago, this is is before the, the, the Jerusalem War, which happened from A.D. 66 to 70. And in A.D. 67, the Emperor Nero sends Vespasian to surround Jerusalem with the Roman armies. Jerusalem at that time is filled with seditious people who are claiming they're going to take over Rome and they're going to be Israel's messiah. Once Vespasian becomes emperor in AD 69, he then sends his son Titus to Jerusalem to complete the job. And the temple is destroyed in AD 70. Now that then takes us to verses 28 and 29. And remember, Jesus is answering the question, when will the temple be destroyed? What will be the sign? Verse 28, from the fig tree learn its lesson. As Soon as its branches become tender and put out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. So notice a couple things. First, in verse 29, notice the phrase, these things. Jesus says, when they see these things take place, that is, when they see, when they see all these things that he's been talking about in verses 5 through 27, then you will know that the destruction of the temple is near. And then you go back up to verse 28 and you see the fig tree. And the lesson of the fig tree here, first it reminds us of when Jesus cursed the fig tree back in Mark chapter 11. And you'll remember that Jesus curses the fig tree and the fruitless fig tree withers. Just like Jesus curses the temple and the fruitless temple will end up desolated. But notice what it's saying in verse 28. Notice how it says, as soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So connect then this fig tree to the previous fig tree of Mark 11. In the desolation of the temple, there is also a bud on the fig tree. That portends a new branch. That portends a new temple. So the old temple is destroyed. The new temple is constructed. The temple of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, the kingdom of God. And so verses 24 through 31 is talking about the event for which there is a sign. The known time. The destruction of the temple. Verses 32 through 37 is the event for which there is not a sign. This is the unknown time. This is the second coming of Christ. And even Kenneth Gentry, the pastor and the the prolific author about postmillennialism, even he understands that verses 32 through 37 is a shift to a different event from the destruction of the temple. And notice verse 32 signals a transition. See, Jesus' words in verse 31 function as a conclusion to the event for which there is a sign. Then verse 32, the phrase, but concerning, is an indication of a subject change. And that phrase, but concerning, is used as a subject change throughout the New Testament. Notice also that signs are featured in verses 5 through 31, but they disappear in verses 32 through 37. Notice that Christ knows when the event of verses 5 through 31 will take place, but he does not know whenever the event from verses 32 through 37 takes place, which fits because Christ knows when the temple destruction will occur, but he doesn't know when the second coming will occur. Also notice that the event happening before verse 32 is short. It's going to occur in this generation, but the wait beginning in verse 32, is so long that they may fall asleep, and they don't know when it will come, it says in verse 35. Notice also, in the event, in verses 5 through 31, there is a chance to flee, in verse 14. But in verses 32 through 37, there is no chance to flee. And so verses 32 through 37 is talking about a different event from the first part of the chapter. Verses 32 through 37 is a promise of the second coming of Christ. Now verse 36 says Christ will come suddenly, and so we should not be asleep. And so if the Son himself doesn't know the day or hour he will return, then we can be content to be ignorant on the matter. In the meantime, we need to be ready and faithful. And so as we look at... All that is going on here in verses 24 through 37, we need to ask what lessons can we learn from this passage? And what are we supposed to do with this now? And Mark chapter 13 is training you for action. Mark chapter 13 trains you for action in four specific ways. First, Mark 13 trains you to keep watch. Four times we're told to keep watch. Verse 5, verse 9, verse 23, and verse 33. Now there's another uh, charge in here where Jesus says to be alert. And some of the English translations conflate these two terms. They're actually two different words. We'll get to be alert in a minute. Uh, Be alert just means stay awake, be attentive, be ready. To be on watch, it's a similar word, but it is a little different. To watch means to be on guard. So pay attention to what you hear. Put yourself in a position to see, and in particular, the command to watch is directed towards false teachers. You see this in verse 5, the first time it's used. And so we need to keep watch for false teachers. That's the primary application of the watching that Jesus is commanding here. And so if we're going to keep watch for false teachers... That means we need to understand how false teachers operate, especially in 21st century American evangelicalism. So how do false teachers operate today? Well, in our current context, false teachers tend to chop the gospel in half and form a theology that magically matches the worldview and outlook of the ruling elites, all the major corporations, the mainstream media outlets, and Ivy League university faculty. Oh, it just so happens to match what everyone is now saying. And if you don't say this, you'll be canceled. What a coincidence. That's what false teachers are doing today. And so to keep watch for false teachers is to notice things like this and to identify these false teachers as posers. Now, to identify a false teacher, you can't look at their position. There is no position in a church where it's called assistant pastor of false teaching. There's no seminary professor. Their title is false teacher. So you can't look at their position. If you're just looking at people's position, you're going to be led astray. And so you don't look at their position because... The false teacher might be a New Testament scholar at a respectable seminary, or she might be a best-selling author, and all your friends are doing a workbook study with her latest offering. But what are we commanded? We're commanded to keep watch, and so women, that means you need to keep watch when it comes to authors like Beth Moore, Amy Bird, and Rachel Hollis. Keep watch. Now, understand, we don't identify false teachers by the costumes they wear. They might be wearing a costume of respectability, but that's not how we identify false teachers. False teachers today reveal themselves by trying to win the approval of those who are credentialed in society. False teachers today identify themselves, reveal themselves, by trying to win the approval of those who are respectable. And so... The first thing Jesus trains us to do is to keep watch. The second thing Jesus trains you to do is he trains you that you don't know. He trains you that you don't know. And that's why you have to be alert. Now in particular, verses 32 through 37, you don't know when Christ will return. And for that matter, you don't know when you will die and go to him. You don't know when these things will happen. Now, we live in an age of failed predictions. And these failed predictions should always remind us that you don't know everything that you think you know. And we see failed predictions in all sorts of different places. We see failed predictions in the evangelical world, lots of best-selling books that have made the authors very rich have predicted the second coming of Christ. But there's also failed predictions When it comes to the economy, failed predictions with the stock market, failed predictions with political forecasting and that sort of thing. Failed predictions are swirling around us, religious, political, social. How should we live when predictions are rising and falling all around us? Be on the alert, verse 33. Be on the alert, verse 35. Be on the alert, verse 37. When failed predictions are rising and falling all around you, be on the alert. Now, what does that mean? It basically means stay awake. You have to be ready to meet God at any time. You have to be ready to be faithful at any time. Now, no one thought that Babylon could ever be destroyed. No one thought Persia would be destroyed. Many couldn't fathom that Jerusalem would be destroyed yet they each were destroyed. No one thinks the United States will be destroyed. Be alert. Stay awake. Be ready. We do not rest in the strength of the U.S. military. Pharaoh's mighty army was drowned in the sea. Psalm 33:17 17 says, the war horse is a false hope for salvation. You see, there's lots of Christians out there who are slumbering. They are asleep. They have not remained alert as Jesus commanded them. And so there's a lot of Christians out there today who don't know how to live. They don't know what to join. They don't know what to hold to. They don't know what to love and what to hate. They don't know what to respect and what to despise. They are slumbering, and in their slumber, they are living a sterilized and artificial life, detached from their soul. And what does Jesus say about this? Keep watch, be ready, stay alert, which means no more slumbering. You need to figure out how to live. You need to figure out what to join. You need to figure out what to hold to. You need to figure out what to love and what to hate. You need to figure out what to respect and what to despise. And in our society today, it is young men especially who are slumbering, who are sleepwalking their way through life. And so young men, be alert. Stay ready. Ambition can be sinful, but the lack of ambition can be just as sinful. Be alert. Young men especially. You need to figure out how to live and what to join and what to love and what to hate. You need to develop a taste for the meaning of the universe God has made for you to live in. And you're never going to be alert when you're slumbering. So then the question is how do you figure it out? How do you figure out what to join and what to love and all these things? And that takes us to the third point. And so Mark 13 is training you for action. It's training you first to keep watch, especially as it relates to false teachers. It's training you that you don't know, so be alert. And third, Mark 13 trains you to trust Jesus's word. How do you figure out what you're supposed to join and what you're supposed to love? Well, you can trust Jesus's word. Now, how does Mark 13 reveal this particular point? Well, some unbelievers, most notably Bertrand Russell in the early 20th century and Christopher Hitchens in the early 21st century, they look at the Olivet Discourse, they look at Mark 13 and Matthew 24 and they say, look, here's why I'm not a Christian, Jesus was wrong. Jesus predicted that he would return again in this generation, as it says in verse 30, and he didn't return, and so Jesus is wrong. So I can't trust Jesus' word, I can't trust the word of his apostles, and I can't trust the word of the Bible. Now, what do we say to this? Well, to Bertrand Russell and Christopher Hitchens and all the others who look at this passage as if Jesus was wrong, we say, no, Jesus was right. Because he wasn't predicting the second coming in verses 5 through 31. He was predicting the destruction of the temple. And that did happen in his generation. Judgment did come to Jerusalem just like he promised. Jesus said something would happen and it did happen. And this actually validates Jesus' message, which means you and I can have confidence in the words of Christ. You and I can have confidence in the words of his apostles. You and I can have confidence in the words of the Bible. And so that means as you develop a taste for the meaning of the universe, you can trust the words of Jesus Christ. And as you long for reform and repentance, remember that the word of God is the creator of worlds. The Word of God is the wave maker of oceans. The Word of God is the catalyst of reformation. The Word of God is the shaper of saintly cities. And the Word of God is the stimulant of the movements that matter. And so do you want the world to come to Christ? Well then, preach the Word, declare the Word, summons the promises of the Word, and... Obey the Word. And now our fourth and final point. Jesus is training us for action, and fourth, it trains you that history is marked by ends and new beginnings. History is marked by ends and new beginnings. You see, history is not about one thing after another. History is about the ending of worlds, and the world has ended many times. Peter Lighthart points out that the world after Eden was submerged by the flood, and the post-flood world was dispersed at Babel. The world of the patriarchs ended in Egypt. The world of the tabernacle and judges was overturned by the Philistine conquest, and the Davidic dynasty ended with exile. And the history of Western civilization follows a similar pattern. The Roman Empire fell in the 5th and 6th century. The Western medieval world was shattered by the Reformation. And the old regime in France was broken by the French Revolution. Is the world order that we call the United States collapsing? We don't know. The answer very well may be yes, which means we have a lot to learn from Mark 13. When worlds end, the pressures and phenomenon repeat themselves. Nation against nation, political upheaval, kingdom against kingdom, the mighty fall, and others rise. And the people of God are usually at the center. They're there faithfully walking with the Lord, suffering persecution, and contending with false prophets and apostasy. Jesus' focus, though, isn't on the politics of the federal government. Jesus' focus is on strengthening the disciples so they're ready. And this always begins with remembering the gospel the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know the guilt of your sin, you feel it, and you crave from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit redemption, justification, and forgiveness. In some, you crave fatherly love. You crave fatherly approval. When you stand before the throne of judgment, God will not say to you, all oh, those sins, they were nothing. They're of no account. I didn't even notice. Note, when you stand before the throne of God, he's going to say, I noticed every single sin. And then he's going to say, And if you have faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord, I do not see your sin. I see the merits of my Son who is standing in your place. By faith in Christ, the Heavenly Father sees you through the lens of Christ's shed blood as holy, blameless, and forgiven. That's the love of God that is yours by faith in Jesus Christ. Let's close by praying together. Heavenly Father, we ask for your name's sake that you would help us to be watchful, to be alert, and to trust Jesus' word. In this way, through the power of your Spirit, help us to present our lives as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable in your sight, which is our reasonable act of service. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's Trinity Reformed, K-I-R-K, dot com.